Let's read together. Mark 8, starting in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his life? And what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the Word of God. So he began to teach them. And the key word here in verse 31 is began. Now that the apostles see that Jesus is the Christ, he is the one who will right every wrong in this world. He began to share with them his plan for doing so. His master plan. And he unfurls this plan all the way through the rest of Mark's Gospel. This plan is is so certain, so resolute, so written in stone that from this point forward, Jesus sticks to it. Face towards Jerusalem and literally walks towards it. That plan is death on a Roman cross. The king's ransom. The more I studied and and the more I meditated on on the words Jesus uses here to lay out the details of this master plan, the more clearly three strands stood out. Three strands of, of truth running and repeating down this passage. Like three separate waterfalls of truth to be absorbed and to change our lives. And the first likely stood out to you already, which is that the cross is unavoidable. It is unavoidable, not only for Jesus, but for us. The second is that is a surprise, and that is everyone's moved by the cross, but it's religion that rejects real crosses. It's kind of a surprise. Religion rejects real crosses. The third one is will you. The third is the easiest to miss, but most worth waiting for because we'll see that right here, Jesus gives us the very best reasons in this passage to embrace his cross and to embrace our own. So first, the cross is unavoidable. If you seek to know God through Jesus Christ, 
They can't avoid the very center of it all, which is the cross. Jesus' apostles, his best friends, his co-workers, his roommates for this journey, right? The roomies going along with them in tents, most likely. They got to have been shocked at this point. Finally, they get Jesus. He is the Christ, the one of whom the Scriptures prophesy will live rightly in God's sight so that he can right every wrong in God's sight including their own lives. He is the champion. He's the victor. He's the winner. He'll finally put to right every wrong. He'll enter Jerusalem. He'll reclaim the temple from King Herod. He'll right every wrong by taking the crown as king. But instead, he enters Jerusalem, overturns the temple, and is crowned with thorns. And we have to understand that there is nothing in Jewish thought at this time, nothing in Jewish thought and Jewish literature and whispers and rumors that would suggest that a Messiah would suffer and die. Even though we see it littered in places like Isaiah 53 and Zechariah, it talks about the one whom it will be pierced and beholding him. There's nothing that would say our champion, our winner, the one, will die. No expectation of this, which helps us understand then Peter's emotional response to Jesus. He is shocked. He uses the same words towards Jesus that's used towards a demon. He rebukes Jesus. What? I just confessed to you as the one who's going to make all things right. He's going to be crowned as king. So Jesus knows, dealing with this shock, that he must repeatedly, even forcefully, make it very clear that the cross is his central and unavoidable destiny. He will head towards it at all costs. And that's the first thread we see here in this passage. Jesus repeats this again and again. Let's look at it together. So Jesus began to teach them in verse 31. Began is telling because he'd repeat these words here almost verbatim two additional times in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Chapter 10 verse 32-34, spacing out this cross plan right at moments of victory. The disciples see a great healing. Don't forget the cross. Alright? The disciples talk about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus says, don't forget my plan. The cross. He speaks of His cross plan plainly, it says in verse 32. Remember up to this point, Jesus spoke to them only using parables. Remember when he says this in Mark 4? He uses only one more parable for now on. One more parable. Even that parable is about a son whom people kill. In other words, the only parable left is a parable about the cross. Because that's the central plan. Now they must know. Jesus speaks very plainly from now on. They must plainly know The cross is central and unavoidable. I'm going to speak it straight to you. In verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter in plain sight for tempting him with any other plan than the cross. Right? Can't we find an alternative to this? In fact, any other plan would be satanic. That's That's a pretty clear description, right? More on that in a moment. Jesus continues to make this clear by asking any would-be disciples, anyone who would love him, who would cherish him, who would come after him, they have to imitate this plan. 
in their own lives. So he says here in verse 34, he called the crowd and with his disciples said, let me be clear. This is why he's gathering everybody together. I've been talking to my disciples over here. Peter's been rebuking me over here. Let's get everybody together. I want to make this clear. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross and follow me. In fact, in verse 38, Jesus makes it clear then what the world considers shameful, a Roman cross must become central to making all of our plans, to being our everything, to being every reason we might have for bragging in this world, for boasting in this world. It has to be the cross, because if it's not, one day the Son of Man will be ashamed of us. If we're ashamed of Jesus' words, ashamed of the cross, we sleep back, oh, the cross is weakness, the cross is painful, the cross is awful, one day the Son of Man will come and be ashamed of us. Jesus is so crystal clear about this plan being unavoidable, but why is it so unavoidable? Why, is it, why this plan for the Christ, the conqueror, the Son of Man? Why not another way? And, and why does Christ have to die? And, and it's almost overwhelming to start listing reasons for this because people thought about this for hundreds and thousands of years and many explanations, but I'm going to give you four reasons. And even that's a lot, but I want it to be a lot because I want you to see the depth of this plan and the depth of effective suffering. It's going to help us understand why religion, religion being man's attempt to get to God, rejects the cross. All right, so reason number one, Jesus had to die. Historical glory. Historical glory. Now, the reputation of the cross in the first century Roman world, Greek world, was absolutely a horrid one. It was reserved, first of all, a crucifixion as a punishment only for murderers, traitors, those captured in the costliest of battles. It would last usually for days and be a humiliating thing for families and generations to come. The very word was never spoken in public unless absolutely necessary because a cultured society wished not to even think of it. I would say it's like saying the cross would be like a curse word, although curse words today are said pretty, are thrown around pretty frequently, right? Social gatherings and this and that. It would be more like a word like rape. That makes everyone uncomfortable, Right? No one wants to talk about that word in public, socially. Anything other than the BBC or CNN or rolling across an article we read online to deal with a reality, but certainly not in public. Again, imagine the shock with that kind of word then when Jesus says it out of nowhere to describe his rescue plan. And furthermore, it was the worst kind of death in Jewish history also. And it's interesting because in an otherwise obscure reference about capital punishment, well before something so sinister as a crucifixion on two pieces of wood from a tree, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy says in chapter 21, verse 23, that anyone hanging on a tree is cursed of God. Anyone who dies hung on a tree is cursed of God. It's a very obscure reference. Until, of course, you see the death of Jesus Christ. The most cursed way to die in the Jewish religion is hanging on a tree. Okay. <laughs> then you see Jesus fulfill that. 
God had a plan in this. God had a plan to use a curse word in something so curse-worthy. As one of Jesus' apostles goes on to explain later in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, right? Worst way to die. Cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. A folly to Gentiles, right? A curse word. A word no one would even utter. The most shameful way a person could die. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. But God chose what's foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. In other words, by rescuing people through a cursed word and a cursed death, no one could say, oh, this guy was only a man. This plan to die on a cross was only a man. God used it to save thousands of people throughout history. Only God could use a plan that everyone else would think is crazy, is contemptible, is cursed. But he gets more glory, see? It's amazing. This is his plan. And he uses it to shame what we would think is strong, what we would think is ideal, what we would think is easily victorious. Historical glory. He dies this way, though, also to identify with physical suffering. Maximum identification with physical suffering. So, so that no human could ever said, God doesn't understand my pain. Oh yeah, look to Jesus. The only God in all religions who's entered into human history, thinking, just thinking of his own destiny, caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood in a rare but recognized medical condition called hematohydrosis. Where due to stress, the capillaries actually burst. The sweat glands would, would invade a capillary such that it would burst. He was spat on. He was mocked for his grand claims, blindfolded and beaten. Officers struck him with the palms of their hands, we're told. Then he got two more beatings after his trial with Pilate. Then a scourging. Scourging was a whip with numerous leather thongs, two feet in length, bits of metal, bone, or glass in each. They were, there was, he was then be attached to a cross, about 100 pounds, 100 pounds, seven to nine inch nails attached to the hands, right at a nerve, the central nerve of the hand called the median nerve, which would cause your hand to immediately burn, go all the way down your arm, all the way down your body. it feel like your arms are on fire until you, of course, had paralysis in your arms. The feet were nailed in such a way to keep the, the knees at a 45-degree angle, such that the only way to breathe was to actually push back on the cross with your legs so that you could actually keep yourself alive by pushing against your legs, and of course, until your legs got too tired to push any longer. So you see, you would actually cause your own death once you got tired enough. 
It's a vicious cycle at that point of an increasing oxygen demand coupled with an increasing heart rate back and forth. You need more blood. We need more oxygen to create that blood, to sustain that blood back and forth until such that a victim dies either through suffocation or cardiac rupture. You might literally say a broken heart. This is the death of Jesus Christ. We identify with every pain you could possibly feel in your life, possibly endure. This is the God who endured it. And there's a moral, ethical reason Jesus died. For love. For love. Jesus would simply say this in John chapter 15, that greater love has no one than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. And you're my friends. I love you. I love you, so I'm going to die for you. The Bible goes on to say, Romans 5, 1 John 4, that God demonstrated his love to the maximum degree in this. That Jesus Christ gave his life for sinners. He demonstrated his love for sinners, saving them through a cross. Finally, there's the legal reason Jesus came to die. The Bible says that God gave us one life, the totality of which we're supposed to honor him and love him back. The way it says that we're supposed to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. But raise your hand if you've ever loved God with all of those things, with all of your life. You haven't. None of us have. And so we owe a life to God. He gave us a life. We haven't done with it what we're supposed to do. And so we owe him a life. Now, the Bible and modern medicine tell us something interesting, that that life is in the blood. Right? All of life is in the blood. You lose blood, you lose life. So that's why people in the Old Testament offered animal blood back to God. It was a temporary way of saying, I'm giving life back to you because I recognize, God, I messed up with my own life. I have not honored you. I have not loved you with all of it. So I'm giving blood back to you. But that was just a temporary fix, a band-aid, if you will, as my kids like to put it. It was just a band-aid. You and I owe a life to God, so he gives his own to spare ours. That's what happens on the cross. Colossians 2, 13-15 puts it in this legal way. God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all those ways we failed to honor Him and love Him with all of who we are, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross You can imagine that record of debt, that long receipt of transgression, of sin. God nails to the cross with Jesus. Paid for. Done. It is finished. There's a legal reason. I I could go on. There's a relational reason. God, through Christ, adopts us back into His family through the cross. There's a spiritual reason, the, the so-called Christ Christus Victor reason, the, that, that through the cross, Christ disarms every spiritual ruler, every demonic force in this world, triumphing over them. There's a transformational reason. Through the cross, we actually change. We'll come back to all this in a moment. All of these reasons, Jesus 
has to go through this plan of the cross that's unavoidable for us. But religion rejects it. That sounds odd, I know, for those of us who currently wear a cross around our neck. I'm guessing many of us have crosses around our necks now, or maybe, maybe you have a, a Bible imprinted with a cross on the cover. Or maybe you grew up worshiping in a church building at the top of which was a steeple and at its apex was a cross. And you remember driving up to that place of worship every Sunday and you'd see that cross. You didn't reject it. You said, yes, thank you, Jesus. But religion, even Christian religion, keeps the cross close but at enough distance to make it tolerable. How many of you are guilty of this? I know I am, if you're a Christian. Cross becomes nothing more than a theological necessity. It becomes the bridge from which we go from ourselves to the Father. It makes a way so that we don't have to think about it anymore. We don't have to think about our sin. We don't have to think about Jesus' sacrifice. He paid it, we're done. So it becomes this bridge, this theological necessity in the middle of life that we've moved past. My guess is, as I went through that list of reasons Christ had to die, somewhere between the cross as a vile curse word and Jesus sweating blood even thinking about it. Many of you are ready for me to move on to something else. Ryan, move on. Get to the good news. I want to move past the cross. It's starting to make me feel uncomfortable. I'm starting to look down. I'm starting to feel ashamed. The cross makes you squirm, doesn't it? Remember Schindler's List? Remember this movie, Schindler's List? Remember when it came out? You know, that came out 20 years ago now, right? It makes you feel very old. It's like you know you're old when you feel like the 1990s was last decade, right? Oh, man. <laughs> I remember when Schindler's List came out, and, and the reason I remember it well is because it took me three years to watch it. Why, what, why is that? I don't know if you relate to this. It took me three years to get to the, well, it wasn't even the theater at that point. It was VHS, right? Hopefully, please be kind, rewind. Remember that? And I remember saying, I don't want to run to Schindler's List. I want to run to Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Right? It's much easier. No one wants to go through almost three hours of people dying and suffering in the most horrible and grotesque way possible. And yet there's the cross, isn't it? No one wants to be part of a dinner conversation. This happened to me. Long ago, where all of a sudden the dinner conversation, you know, it, the, the conversation goes to the disappearance of Anna Evans and the three kids she left behind. You remember this? Disappeared around the around the dump. No one could find her body. I remember being at this function and watching someone, two people, bring this up and converse about it, and everybody else in that conversation, this circle, tried to change the conversation. Of course they did. Why? No one wants to talk about potential murder, suffering kids left over for too long. A sob story shared personally, right? Might grab us for a moment. We might throw money towards us, but no one can endure it for too long. No one has the strength. 
No one has the heart. No one has the self-giving love except for Jesus. At the end of Jesus' noble life was a cursed death, a curse for you put instead on Him. A body that endured sinister torture followed by the severing of nerves and suffocation for which He volunteered. So we never have to. Caring for others, though nobody cared about Him. Do you know that Jesus on the cross cared about John, one of his apostles, having a mom and his mom having someone who could care for him? On the cross, you'd think he might arrange that beforehand, but dying the most gruesome death possible in a kind of agony, he said, I want to make sure you're taken care of. I want to make sure you're taken care of. I want to make sure you know you're forgiven for what you're doing for me. These are the things Jesus concerned himself with on the cross. And if that makes you feel a little bit ashamed, a little bit downcast, a little bit, I want to get out of here. That's what it's supposed to do. One way or another, the cross moves you. In fact, I thought about calling the sermon that this morning. Maybe I should have. One way, the cross always moves people. In our passage, we see the next thread here. It moves four different parties. And that's the next thread. Follow this with me. First of all, it moves people away from it and away from all who would boast in it. Notice, two-thirds of which are religious people here. Two-thirds of the people who flee from the cross, who run for it, are religious people. Now, not the adulterous and sinful generation who generally despise any foolish sign of weakness, right? They say the cross is a crutch. The cross is a crutch. And so it would be tempting for any disciple to think back and either in half-embarrassed tones or not at all talk about the crucified Savior. We also see some religious folks in here. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, we're told rejected Jesus to the cross. These are good husbands. These are, these are dads. These are morally, morally upright people. Spiritually sound people. But they reject the cross. Why? Because the cross is a sign that something is desperately wrong with you for which you are going to die unless someone dies for you the cross is a sign that you need help as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it the the cross is God's truth about you and who wants to hear that truth that something is so wrong with me that somebody 2,000 years ago had to die for me the chief priests the elders the scribes certainly didn't want to hear that That's offensive to me. They didn't want to humble themselves. They want to ask forgiveness for the thousandth time. They wouldn't want to, you know, never again get to take a little bit of credit for something. There's another religious person here who rejects the cross, who flees from it. That's Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus. He calls him Satan. What does that mean? Not so much that Peter is Satan's puppet. People ask me that. They ask, you know, did did Satan kind of take over Peter in this moment? Did he speak through him? I don't know. I don't think it means so much, though, that he's Satan's puppet, but that Peter is aligning himself with Satan's strategy. What do I mean by that? Satan's strategy. You remember that Jesus has been tempted before, that there must be an easier way than the cross, right? 
in the desert. Satan tells Jesus, you know, there's an easier way. Go ahead and just eat. There's an easier way than staying hungry, Jesus, and relying on your Father. There's an easier way. Just use the fullness of your power. There's an easier way, Jesus. Just take on the political rule of every kingdom in this world. And that's surely what Peter had in mind. In accordance with Satan's strategy, but also it's man's, isn't it? The things of man, Jesus said. That's what you have in mind, Peter. The things of man, the plan of Satan, is a strategy about religion. There's an easier way to know God than through Jesus and the cross. There's an easier way. And that's one way you can respond to the cross. I'm going to find an easier way. I don't want to endure pain. So I'll run from it. The cross will cause Peter to further squirm, move, flee from pain to the point where he will even deny knowing Jesus three times, once to a teenage girl. Why? Because it's just easier. There's a fourth party, though. That's the many in the crowd who will be moved through the message of the cross to come after Jesus, to follow him. The cross moves people away from self-sufficiency and self-salvation. We see that here in this passage, right? It moves him who would formerly try to save his own life, as it says in verse 35. Every futile attempt at self-improvement is crucified at the cross. Every attempt to say, I can do better on my own. I can just work at it harder. You can finally throw up your arms because Jesus held out his. It moves people away from their idols and indulgences at the cross. It moves him from whom the world was his gain. As it says in verse 36, nothing can love you back. No idol, no indulgence, no number one thing in your life can love you back like the man who exchanged your destiny with his. With his destiny of the cross. He suffered it, he endured it, he paid it. Nothing can love you back like this man and this God, Jesus. Not your job, not your kids, not your success, not your reputation. And not the feeling that success gives you. even. Not your spouse, not your social life, not your world. And this is hard, isn't it? Because you go from womb to world, not from womb to Jesus. That's why Jesus said you have to be born again. The world, the things of this world, the values of the world, these things you're born into, right? They become your life. They become part of who you are. Such that they have to be ripped away like the skin of Christ was ripped away at the cross. What is your world, your idols, your indulgences, your everything, what was gained before? has to be ripped away. It can only be done so at the cross. It moves people towards restoration with God, the cross does, and a transformation of the image of Christ. You're restored to God. Jesus paid the penalty of the cross. And the more you go there, the more you get before the cross and you remember his sacrifice for you, you remember the price paid for you, the more it transforms your life. Remember, Peter fled the cross denying Jesus three times. Yet after Peter, Jesus rises, Peter stands before the crucified God 
And Jesus restores Peter. How? By asking him three times, just like his denial, three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Thereby forgiving Peter, restoring Peter. Give Peter a chance to say, I do love you. I do want to follow you. And what does Jesus say? At the end of this passage, he says, then follow me. Let me tell you something else, Peter. This is in John 21. He says, one day you are going to stretch out your hands. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In other words, Peter, I'm restoring you. I'm transforming you. Follow me. You will also have to die to self. You will also have to take up your own cross. The cross moves everyone. How will it move you? Religion is man's attempt to get to God, and it tends to work because different religions suit different people. This is our attempt to find spirituality, to find God. And people say this all the time, well, this fits me. And so a person might say of Islam, it fits me because of the regimented discipline and the rule following. And I feel like I'm gaining progress. People might say, you know, Hinduism fits me because I've experienced karma and I can abide by that. I've seen the truth of it in my life. Do good, you get good back. Whether this life or another. People say yoga fits me because it centers me. It liberates me to think and to live clearly. The cross fits no one's lifestyle or preferences because it moves everyone. Fits no one and moves you every time. And so religion says no to that. But I can't can't achieve that. This doesn't suit me. I want to stay comfortable. I want to do this myself. I want to stay in control. The cross moves you from that, friends. You can't stay the same. And so religion rejects it. Will you? Is the cross worth it? Being moved from your life, from your world, from your pain-managed comfort? Jesus says yes. He gives us the answer here. He's saying in this passage, child, there is a me at the end of every cross. There is me at the end of every cross. And you might have missed this, but look at this passage again. This is the third thread. All right, so we've seen the first thread. It's that the cross is unavoidable. Jesus is trying to make this painfully clear. We've also seen the cross moves people. He moves all these different parties, whether it's the sinful generation that says that's foolishness, whether it's the scribes, the Pharisees who think that is, I cannot humiliate myself like that. Whether it's Peter who rebukes Jesus, emotionally moved by it whether it's people who are moved to follow after Jesus. That's the second thread. The third thread is this here. That Jesus is at the end of every cross. Verse 31. After three days, he will rise again. How easy is it just to miss that little phrase? The Son of Man is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. Then he's going to die. After three days, he'll rise again. It's as if the disciples just missed that phrase, but there it is. Jesus defeats death and will do likewise for all who trust in Him. Such power helps us overcome, even in this life, idols and indulgences, the world into which we were born. 
Jesus gives a resurrection power. Verse 34. You may have missed this, but look. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. That's a hard command, but then there's a me at the end. You have to deny yourself. You take up your cross. You say no to things you didn't previously say no to. But then there's me. You get me. Every no to a certain entertainment you used to enjoy. No to certain tasty bits of gossip. No to you know, skimming a little here or there off the books. Waiting for yet another moment for your spouse to finally say yes. And you wait patiently. It's worth Jesus at the other side of the cross. It's worth your rescuer. It's worth your Savior. Verse 35. You may have missed at the end of denying yourself and losing yourself for Jesus' sake and the Gospel. The Gospel is good news. And so we are giving every promise of the Gospel, every good news of the good news to help us endure every cross. So the assurance of eternity, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the inclusion into God's family, participating with His church, all of these promises are given through the good news. So yeah, you give yourself up. How you deny yourself. But what you gain is so much greater. Verse 36 and 37. Jesus asks questions, right? Both of which end with a reminder that we have a soul. Both of which end with this reminder, hey, look, you have a soul. That would be easy to miss. In the third chapter of an Old Testament book of wisdom called the book of Ecclesiastes, We're told that God has put eternity in the hearts of every person. Every person senses there's something beyond this light. That is because all of us have been given a soul. Each of us has been given eternal potential, which is essentially what a soul is. It's this built-in eternal potential to know God forever. You and I have the potential to live forever and reign with God. What an undeserved privilege. It's easy to miss, isn't it? When we're thinking about what do I have to sacrifice? What do I have to give up? What do I have to endure for Jesus? That's cashed in because Jesus cashed in his life. And finally, for the pain, for the mocking, for the shunning, for the ridicule, for all the funny looks that you might get for speaking up, even boasting about, bragging about, being a Christian, that you know God, through a bloodied and curse-worthy cross. We find that Jesus gives us Himself in glory. That's how He ends this passage. He who comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels, He's going to come in glory to bring you into His. Whatever pain you endure because you deem Jesus worth it, Whatever you give up because you judge Jesus better, whatever you are reviled for speaking about God's great rescue plan through a Roman cross, there, my friends, is Jesus through it all. He is waiting for you at the end of every cross because he first bore a real cross for you. Let's pray. God, so many of us are here this morning because we're on a journey to seek you. We've come to search for God. 
We've asked the question, is there a God? Maybe some of us are here asking that question. We've asked, where is God in my life? What difference does he make in my life? But for us to know God, for us to know you, the cross, Jesus Christ, is unavoidable. Though we would seek to avoid it, though we'd seek to flee from it because of the pain you entered into history to change our lives through it, to save us, to rescue us. Help us take every opportunity in our lives to drag ourselves to it, ready to confess sin, ready to remember the debt you forgave us, dragging ourselves to the cross to be changed by it. Help us go to Friday's Tenebrae service to think on, to consider, to sing about, to proclaim and drink in the death and the agonies of the cross. Help us linger there longer, though it might make us uncomfortable. We might be transformed, cruciformed, if you will, even to look more like you, stripping away our idols and indulgences, all the vain attempts to save ourselves. Because we remember at the end of every cross, both your cross and ours, there you are, and you are the greatest treasure of all. Amen.